Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Blurb, where the back of a book meets a discerning look. Each week, best-selling author Sally Shields and publishing guru Dr. Kent listen to pitches from five authors vying for Book of the Week honors. Now live, on the air, with vigor and style, are Dr. Kent and Sally, the Bibliophiles. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Blurb. Well, it's an exciting week. Uh, I have a lovely, lovely co-host joining me, and um, I'm going to try to get her on the line. Hello, anyone there? Hi, I'm Kate Sullivan. I'm with you. <laughs> Yay, Kate. How are you? <laughs> I'm delighted to be with This is a pleasure for me to be part of this. Thank you for asking me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And just to explain a little bit about the show to everybody out there, we usually listen to authors who have created three-minute blurbs about their book. And me and my co-host, uh, Dr. Kent, who is on the road this week, uh, we generally um, critique the blurbs, and we try to give the authors some marketing advice and tell them how they could better market their books. And we use a criteria basically based on four things, bling, clarity, information, and delivery, because we figured we had to come up with some criteria to make it fair, because at the end of the five blurbs, we usually pick a weekly winner and then post all of their information. So it's a lot of fun. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, Kate, and what your show is all about? I'd love to have the uh, listening audience know a little bit about more about you. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, Wordsmith Media is a – we report on the book publishing industry, and we have uh, two shows. One is, of course, a live show, and then we have the podcast, which is also live on Blog Talk Radio, and we interview um, Pulitzer Prize winning authors. We interview editors from some of the major publishing houses, uh, it's a lot of fun, and then of course we also have, uh, along with our, our radio and podcast, we have um, writing workshops that we do uh, based in the state of Florida, and our company is based in St. Petersburg, Florida. And uh, I've been a journalist for 25 years, so it's a lot of fun. We have a lot of we try and dispel some of the myths, uh, the urban myths about publishing, because there's a lot of information out there, but some of it's uh, misinterpreted. So we can correct that. I'm a journalist, and I try to be, as, as they say, fair and objective. And I'm just delighted to join the show today. It's a lot of fun. I'm delighted that, um, we're going to be doing this. I looked at some of the, the people that you're going to be uh, judging the blurbs, and uh, what, a, what a nice, eclectic group of interesting topics. And we've got a really interesting winner from last week, too, um, and we will be talking about uh, Rick Robinson later. He should be coming on about 10 past the hour, and we'll have a nice chat with him. He wrote uh, a political uh, fiction novel called Sniper Bid, and he's, he's a really dynamic guy, and I'm so excited that he's going to be coming on to talk to us. But, you know, something interesting I'd like to talk to you just for a minute before we start listening to the blurbs is that coming from the behind-the-scenes publishing industry, there's so many misconceptions about if you get signed with a major publisher, oh, you just the author just sits back and lets the publisher, you know, publicize the book and apparently, you know, authors think that there's this marketing wheel going on and all they have to do is write the book and then just sit back and relax. Now, can you tell me a little bit about your take on that whole misconception? It's important for for writers to know that once they lift their head out of the manuscript and decide to send it off with a proposal, a synopsis, a query letter to 
a literary agent that you've just joined a team. You've just joined the team of your literary agent who then is going to be submitting your manuscript to potential publishers. Editors are now, they're really called acquisitions editors. Uh, they're no longer the editors the way it was when Scott Fitzgerald was writing or Hemingway. You have to have a book that is in prime condition. It's, it's been vetted a number of times. It's been rewritten. It's been revised to perfection. And then you join a team that is a combination of uh, the acquisitions editor, and typically they, they are required to, uh, in this economy it's a little bit different, but they used to be required uh, to obtain and acquire 75 books per year. And if you have 10 different editors, senior editors as well as entry-level editors, that's a lot of books that they need to look at. So what they're looking at is, first of all, someone who will join the effort in getting the word out about their book. And that means a lot these days when the budgets, the economic downturn has required that there's a strict pullback in budgets for what used to be known as the, the author's book tour, which is where you went city to city. Um, that's being reduced considerably. So when, a, when an author has a book published, that author has to change hats and now become a marketing guru. And that's the toughest thing that I can tell any anybody who's, whose idea of publishing is that 30 or 40-year-old concept of, oh, yeah, I can relax now, and they take the reins. You're well, holding the tough, the yeah. The tough thing is, is that when you're a writer, you don't have – you don't start off having marketing experience. It's, it's a big shock. And all of a sudden, you're – thrust into this world where they're basically saying, you know, you've got to market the book, you've got to get a platform. I've got a friend, John Baisdow, who is uh, the Fitness Made Simple guy, and he was one of the lucky ones. He, he started off on TV. He ended up getting a major publishing deal. They gave him an unheard of $300,000 in advance for a first-time author. And I was shocked when I heard what they told him. They said, John, we don't know the first thing about marketing. We trust you. Now go out there and sell this thing. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, this is like, I mean, I don't remember exactly if it was Simon & Schuster or Random House, but it was one of the big five. And they basically told him, do your thing, because we don't really know how to publicize your book. So that is one of the things you learn as an author right off the bat, is that you really do have to step into the ring. There, another example is a woman named, I just found out about MJ Rose. I'm not sure if you've heard about authorbuzz.com, but she was a marketing person, and she ended up writing her own book and ended up um, with, basically told her publishing company, if I sign with you, I'm part of the team. And she ended up selling 140000 100, sorry, 140,000 copies of her book. Her agent, for some reason, for some unknown reason, uh, asked for her second book, said, listen, we've got to change publishers, X, Y, Z reason. So she switched over, and this particular publisher said, well, just hand us the reins. You write the book, we'll do the rest. She sold 7,000 copies. That's all they sold because they cut her out of the loop. And now she, she was so discouraged with that, she said, you know what, I'm going to start my own company helping authors. Uh, she has a company called AuthorBuzz.com. She sounds really fantastic. I, I don't think it's. I think there's a range in price somewhere from her, her lowest package is maybe around a thousand dollars and goes up to about five thousand. But if people are really interested in learning how to market and work with somebody on a personal basis, 
this is just one person that I just wanted to put out there that I just learned about that I was very impressed by. But it certainly is a shocker, and you really do have to jump in with your eyes open and realize that if you don't get out there and learn how to publicize your book, your book isn't going to get out there because people aren't going to know about it. I don't care if you're with a Random House or a Wiley or, or anybody. You've got to learn how to publish, uh, publicize your own book, and it's tough. It's not easy. It's very true, and one of the things that uh, people who are really good writers, whether they're in, whether they're writing nonfiction or fiction, if they love writing and they hate the marketing end of it, there are people who, if you have the resources, you can hire them. Uh, Scott Manning, who's associated with Grove Press, has his own company, and it's uh, he does PR for um, Mark Bowden, whose wonderful book, um, gosh, I can't remember the title, he'll kill me, uh, Black Hawk Down. Uh, Black Hawk Down was a tremendous bestseller, socio-political, economic bestseller about uh, the war and the rescue. And Black Hawk Down, of course, was a uh, a military uh, military incident. Um, It's it's something that if you hire someone like Scott Manning or Joyce Green out on the West Coast or some of the PR people who are available. they kind of take the the reins away from you if you're if you're shy if you're if your presentation presentation skills need a little bit of adjusting. But one of the things that you probably need to get very comfortable with is speaking in public, speaking to people who are your avid readers, and you want to build that avid readership. So there are people who will do that, but most authors who have worked and sweat they sweat to get this book. It's a birth. It really is. They're birthing their their novel or their nonfiction piece. They don't understand that, and, and this is that that awful fight between art and commerce. The book is a piece of art. It's structured so that you've developed what you believe is a is a clear intent, and you you pretty much understand who your market audience is, who's the, who's the audience that's going to be reading this book. But then to actually have to stand up in front of a group of thirty or three hundred or three thousand and talk about your work, uh, it, it's really challenging for a lot of authors. That's right. So, and, you know, one of the things that you have to do and, and learn to do as, as an author, and especially in the nonfiction realm, is you do have to learn to speak. And I know there's, there's usually two categories of authors. There's the really super shy ones who would rather swallow slithering snakes than get up there and talk about their book. And there are the, the extroverts that had to have no problem. But one of the best ways to sell your book is to learn the art of speaking. Because basically what you got to do is you got to go up there and you got to talk about your book and find places to talk, talk about it. And then what you do is you make buying your book a prerequisite. In addition, basically, when you first set up your speaking engagement, one of the, the secrets of, of some of the great speakers is to simply make, make purchasing a copy of your book a prerequisite to each and every uh, attendee prior to the speech. And that is one way that, that uh, people sell a lot of their books. And it's really the, one of the best ways that I know how uh, basically an, a first-time author, an unknown author, or even a well-known author can, can learn to sell their books is to learn how to speak. And it's, it's not easy at first. It is scary. But it's, it's one of the, the big ways to get your book and word about your book out there. It's very true. It's important. I mean, there, the one thing that I find about writers is that they have no trouble reading or writing, but getting up in front of a, a crowd, as you say, it's the, it's the, oh, my God, can I have a slithering snake for breakfast? <laughs> but, exactly. 
the 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 thing about speaking and some people you know they say death taxes and speaking are the three most horrid things that you can that you can encounter there are groups that will help people um one of the most successful writers that i know has what's called a back of the room book it's called the celebrity experience and the author is donna cutting and she's part of the nsa which is the national speakers association and the only reason that she, well, I don't know what the only reason, but the reason, one of the reasons that she wrote The Celebrity Experience, and she went out and interviewed a lot of people who were very famous. She interviewed celebrities in Hollywood, and she interviewed people who, who understood what the, the meaning of the celebrity experience was. And she really wrote that so that she could go out on her speaking engagements and have something which is called the back of the room book. And her sales were so phenomenal. And, and this happens quite frequently. There are authors who do a, what's called a back-of-the-room book, and it's a niche book, but it takes on a life of its own. And then a major or a mainstream publisher will say, you know what, we can help with that. We can give you a lot more distribution, and, but you still have to go out and have it as a back-of-the-room book. Well, here's, so there's a here's, lot. What, yeah, here's what I think about, about the whole thing with the publisher. See, if you're a successful speaker and you're selling your book at the back of the room, I think that it's even more important to remain a self-published author because you can retain most of the royalties. If a publishing company steps up and basically does everything and takes over the book and takes the royalties, you might be earning pennies per book sold unless you can work out a deal with them in advance that you're allowed to buy a certain number of your own books at cost you can still maintain a good profit, a, a good uh, profit when you sell your own book. But I, I've come, in, I've, you know, come in contact with speakers that did sell out to publishers, and later on were frustrated because basically they were going out and selling the book uh, for the publisher. So it's well, there are challenges. There are challenges in going in both directions. If you're selling uh, your manuscript to a publisher, they may forget to tell you that. Um, foreign rights distribution is key and that you'll make 40% additional revenue for foreign rights and some authors are not aware of that clause in the contract. So they, they essentially are giving away a lot of their distribution and a lot of the revenue. The other side is that a self-published author, you know, you're going to be storing your books, you're going to be distributing, you're going to be wearing your marketing hat, you're going to be doing your PR, you're going to be sending out your press releases. Some individuals who are writing do not have the stamina for that or they do not have the the resources to do that. I mean, it, it's expensive to market a product. It's expensive to develop it, to launch it. It's expensive to uh, make sure that the shelf life is what they want it to be. And shelf life is very important in books. Um, you know, remainders, one of the things that, that always amuses me is that Stephen King and a group of authors have created a band called the Rock Bottom Remainders. And it is a horror story for every author to say, oh, my book was wonderful and had a great launch, and now it's in the remainders. Uh, but it is everything about publishing these days is challenging. And whether you decide to go the self-publishing direction or you go mainstream publication with some of the big seven, and of course Bertelsmann owns Random House, and they have money, many, many imprints under the, under the Bertelsmann uh, roof. I agree with you that it, these are challenging decisions, and, and people who are deciding what to do with that manuscript, I mean, most of them that I've discovered have no problem writing a 300,000-word manuscript, but then when it comes to writing the query letter or boiling it down to a book proposal, they absolutely balk. 
right. but cannot distill that 300,000 into. And, and what's nice about Blurb is you're really challenging people to do what's called an editor's pitch. You're challenging them to be succinct and get everything about that book that is intriguing into a three-minute pitch. And that's really difficult to do well. Well, I think that is a perfect segue to listen to our first blurb of the week. What do you think? I'm ready. (laughs) Sign me up. Sign me up. Here we go. We're going to listen to a blurb by Angie Angie Zimmerman, who I'm very, very excited to see is in the chat room with us. She's written a book called The Do-It-Yourself Wedding Flower Guide, and I just can't wait to hear this blurb. So I'm going to play it for us right now. Here we go. Hi there, it's Angie Zimmerman, the wedding flower diva. I have 18 years experience providing professional wedding flowers to well over a thousand couples. With the recent difficulties in our economy, I have found that many brides-to-be are looking for a way to save money without sacrificing the beautiful wedding flowers she's always dreamed about. I've seen the results of brides that tried to do their own flowers without any guidance, and they ended up walking down the aisle with wilted, ugly flowers. As you know, there are no do-overs. Those ugly, wilted flowers will be in their pictures forever. Flowers are a focal point at adding any wedding, and therefore you want them to be beautiful. I have authored a very reasonable do-it-yourself wedding flower guide with written step-by-step instructions with every step from selecting and ordering the flowers to designing and storing the flowers. I also provide five DVDs that come with the book showing the brides how to prepare the flowers with tons of insider tips. A bride will learn how to professionally prepare her own wedding flowers at a fraction of the normal cost. In fact, the typical savings is 50 to 75% of the normal cost. The bride will learn how, where, and when to order her flowers. I show her how to process her flowers and when to design her flowers so that she is not doing all of this the night before the wedding. My goal when writing this book was to make this a fun, stress-free adventure for this bride. I want her to feel proud of what she created. I provide insider tips that you aren't going to find anywhere else. To find out how to get your copy of my Do-It-Yourself Wedding Flower Guide, visit my website at www.doityourselfweddingflowerguide.com. That's www.doityourselfweddingflowerguide.com. Thanks for looking. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. I loved it. Um, I'll I'll tell you a couple things that I thought about it, and then you can let me know what you think. Uh, First of all, I I don't know if Angie's been listening to the show, but I always tell people, if you can give yourself a little nickname like the Wedding Flower Diva, do it, because a lot of times people won't remember the author's name, but if you have a cute little name like the in-law expert like I've done for my book, The Daughter-in-Law Rules, or The Wedding Flower Diva, or The Shopping Cart uh, Queen, or something like that, it really is catchy. Uh, she, I, I also always talk about how uh, the only two things that you need to be a successful author are to have a passion for your topic and a sincere desire to help people. She obviously has both. She's passionate and she wants to help people. She tells, the, she tells us what's in it for them. She tells uh, the bride you know, they can save money. She wants the, how to, you know all these insider tips, typical savings. And at the end, she makes sure to let us know where we can reach her. She reiterated her website a couple times, and that was great because people want to know where we can find her book and more about her. So I, I was very, very, very happy with that blurb. Please tell me your reaction to it. 
Well, what I like about it is that she answers the three questions that I always ask any, any writer who's getting ready to launch a book. You know, what's the targeted audience for your book? And she answers that very well. And these are new brides. These are people who are, and it may be beyond, it may be a wider audience where people are special, doing special events and planning things that they'd like to have something special on each table at the event. So she answers the question, you know, when I always ask them, what is your targeted audience? She also answers the second question, why this book and why now? And that's a perfect answer. She said, you know, that this is going to save them a terrific um, amount of money, and in today's economy, that's very important. And then the third question I always ask is, why are you the best person to write this book? And she's got an extensive background in it, and she answers that by telling us up front how extensive her background is in this industry. So I thought it was excellent. And I agree with you, uh, you know, she's, and she's got the links and the resources. That's key in any book that gives you a, kind of a, a DIY, do it yourself. You've got to have the links and resources to send people to some of the vendors that they may not know about, which, you know, the insider tips are excellent. So I was very pleased with that whole pitch. Oh, my goodness, absolutely, me as well. And now let's go on to Baraka J. Let me see what's next here. Yeah, Baraka J. Truce. There's a book called Lover of a Loser, A Testament of Hope and Endurance. Let's take a listen to this blurb. Love Talk Radio. Lover of a Loser by Baraka J. Truss. What is a loser? Many people can formulate their opinions in regard to what constitutes a loser. One may say that a loser is classified as a team or an individual that is not successful in winning a particular sporting event. Modern technology may classify a loser as one who has no potential to do anything positive. Lover of a loser takes losing to another plateau as well as provides a different approach to the concept of losing. It chronicles the ups and downs of a family that has lost almost everything imaginable, both tangible and intangible. The author gives a first-hand account on the struggles of watching her spouse go through physical and emotional changes due to multiple amputations. Lover of a Loser was not only designed for the family and friends that are affected by the amputation, but it is also designed for the amputee as a ray of hope. I'm going to let you start with this one. <laughs> well, I'm a journalist, so when somebody, and I get a lot of feature, uh, feature articles across my, my desk uh, from some of, you know, some of my potential freelance writers, and when they bury the lead, uh, it, that's the one pet peeve that I have, and she's buried the lead. Uh, it, and the, 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 the most important thing about this particular book is that She's describing an amputee as a loser, so I have a little trouble with that. Uh, and the title and the description are a mismatch. Uh, I guess lover of a loser, uh, she predicted quality for why you want to read this book. And I was hoping this was sort of a deep I was found this guy who's, you know, maybe, to use the word nebbish, which 
uh, insurance, you know, administrators, but uh, he's he's almost not up to par as a guy. And I was thinking that's the direction. So as she's telling me all of this, she's defining uh, what is what is a loser, which and the definition is not needed. What's needed is the conflict and who she is, and again, answering those questions. What's the targeted audience for your book? Uh, why, why this book and why now? And why are you the best person to write this book? And she kind of misses out on all of those. We don't know anything about her as the author. We don't know why she wrote the book, why it's important to her. Uh, we do know that it's about, uh, you know, as we bury the lead and find it and discover it, we know it's about amputees. So the topic is intriguing. But she's got to be able to bring that presentation up to where she has an immediate hook for her reading audience. In other words, um, and it's a niche market, um, but it's, it's an important topic. So I'd like to see her restructure her pitch to where she's talking about who she is, why she got involved in writing this book, very short, could be one or two sentences, and then beyond that, pull up the topic to the front. In other words, I'm so-and-so, uh, my brother was an amputee or my husband was an amputee, and that's why I wrote this book. So that gives us the credentials that we need to follow along through this pitch with her. What I, are your I thoughts? Agree. I absolutely agree. At, at first she started talking about the definition of a loser, which was uh, you know, a teen or an individual who's not successful in sports or somebody has new potential joining positive. Uh, and then she starts to go into the fact it's something about a chronicle, the ups and downs of a family. It started to sound like maybe it was a fiction book, so I was confused there. And then because she, she spoke in the third person, she said she watches her spouse go through changes, multiple amputations. So, again, it's in the third person, which is confusing if you're talking about a nonfiction book. Um, but then, so halfway through the blurb, we're all of a sudden kind of confused. So when it comes to those... Uh, four criteria that we're talking about, the, the clarity and the information. Those were absolutely blurred for me, so I was very confused. And um, like, you, like you said, it was a little bit disturbing when it turned out that she was talking about an amputee and pairing uh, the fact that uh, an amputee was a loser because obviously that's not something you really want to be. Those two words are, don't really, shouldn't really go together. It's almost like, I don't want to say uh, politically incorrect, but it doesn't feel right to me. If the person has, well, it's, has amputation... It's, a, it's demeaning for so many people to think that uh, that's the label that they're going to go through life with uh, after either a horrible auto accident or military people coming back from overseas and they've lost a limb. Uh, you know, she needs to represent it. I, now, I do like the delivery. I mean, her delivery is excellent. Uh, she just needs to restructure it. Yes, I agree. I agree. So uh, thank you so much for those wonderful comments. Let's go on to listen uh, to our third blurb, a blurb by Chloe John Paul. And the name of her book is Entering the Age of Elegance, a Rite of Passage and Practical Guide for the modern maturing woman. This will be interesting. Let's check it out. Love Talk Radio. Hello, my name is Chloe Jean-Paul, and I'm here to tell you about my latest book, Entering the Age of Elegance, a Rite of Passage and Practical Guide for the Modern Maturing Woman. For more information about me and my latest accomplishments, please visit my website, maturingmodernwomen.com. Now, 38 million baby boomer women have already entered the age of elegance, which is a new stage of life with a new identity. 
more will follow, yet many of these women are making this journey without any real advanced planning. Many of them don't even think of themselves as elegant, but this transition into the second half of their lives can take place with style and grace. Now, I want you to think fast. Format, approach, style, tempo. These are the key elements which make this book original. I wrote it as a travel guide filled with valuable information that will whet your appetite to explore the resources in detail on the topics featured in the book. The table of contents provides such curiosity-evoking subtitles as change your oil filter, the FGA quotient, the F word you need to use, the Ten Commandments of Aging Motherhood, Think MSN, and I don't mean Microsoft, Beyond Support Pantyhose, and Just Heard It Through the Grapevine. I have networked with more than 25 leading women's organizations across the nation, and feedback on the book has been overwhelmingly positive. But wait, let's hear what the experts are saying. This is what Dotsie Bragel, founder and president of the National Association of Baby Boomer Women, has said. John Paul has written a comprehensive guide for women at midlife, which reveals the many facets of how change and how to live through them with grace. Travel with her and discover practices that are life-altering. She gives voice to many aspects of our middle years that will educate and encourage you to want to live your best second adulthood. Then, Dr. Dory Lynn, psychologist and media personality, says, thanks to Chloe John Paul, women finally have a practical guide to planning their fabulous journey into their age of elegance. Pack your bag and travel wisely and well as a maturing modern woman. You won't find a better roadmap anywhere to help you through the sometimes confusing labyrinth of second adulthood. Give this book to friends, family, and even the men in your life. Let them travel with you. You will be glad you did. My readers especially like the litany of elegance found at the end of the book, and it can be viewed on my website. So there you have it, the perfect travel guide for the woman making this fabulous journey into the age of elegance. And to her, I say, bon voyage. Kate, <laughs> are you there? I hope we didn't lose Kate. Let's find out if she's still here. Let me see. Let me see. Kate, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I think you got muted by, by mistake. Glad you're back. Oh, good. <laughs> you. So, please, did you, were you able to hear all that? I heard uh, most of it. I heard most okay. of it. Would you, would you like to start? Would you like to comment on what you thought? Sure. Well, I like the fact that she opened with the baby boomer statistics, um, and she talked about advanced planning. But for our listening audience, I think one of the things that is important is that when you, when you do a pitch for this kind of a book and you're, um, you're talking about certain concepts, you really need to follow through in that, in that book pitch. Um, I do think the title is a little long. And I do think that uh, some of her editorial comments uh, as she's doing the pitch need to, you know, need to be tightened. It. I didn't time that pitch. Uh, if you did, I th- it seemed a little long. Uh, well, we it seemed them, longer. We give them three, 
three minutes. Um, not not okay. all of the, the authors actually use all the three minutes because the three minutes is actually an eternity because I'm I'm, <laughs> a, I'm an elevator yeah. pitch person and my yeah, elevator, I teach people how to come up with ten to fifteen second elevator pitches where three sentences who you are, what your vision is, what problem you can solve for people. It's like if, it's if you're in an elevator with Oprah or, or Steven Spielberg and you literally had 15 seconds. So to me, three minutes is just like, oh, my God, it's an eternity. So, um, yeah, I agree. I like what you said about the statistics because, you know, the media loves statistics. So any authors that are thinking about using radio as a way to promote themselves, statistics are fantastic. So I do like that she brought those in. I did. I did too. Confused about the fact that she she said it was a travel guide, but I didn't know if she was using that as a as a um, as a uh, I can't even a euphemism. She was. I think yes. she was using it. Yeah, as an analogy or a euphemism. Analogy. So exactly, my mommy yeah. brain was wasn't kicking in. I couldn't think of the words. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of like a um, a metaphor in in terms True. of her life True. and um, uh, it was a little confusing. She, you're right. She yeah. She needed to make that a little more clear. Yeah, a little bit more clear about that. I, I did like that, um, you know, she talked about sometimes, you know, how we talked about it, sometimes it's, it's difficult to uh, promote yourself. She didn't have that hard of a time with that, but I did like how she brought in quotations from other experts, and she was able to quote what other people had said about her book, and that was actually a nice touch, I felt. Uh, from Dotsie Bragel, um, she brought in a couple of other quotes and I thought that was powerful. Um, I could have, uh, I think she, she said her website once at the beginning, maturingmodernwoman.com. I think I could have done with maybe another mention of that towards the end. Um, but uh, overall, not a, not a bad blurb. I was just a little, I think she could tighten up the, the, uh, the information and uh, the, the, uh, the clarity. I agree, I agree. Uh, and of course, the the one thing is their delivery was excellent. You know, she's she's very strong. Her her voice is clear. Her diction, her pronunciation is wonderful. So I give her I give her some props for that. Fantastic. Well, you know, our I just noticed that our last week winner, uh, our last week's winner, Rick Robinson, is actually re- almost ready to go. And we have about seven more minutes. So let's see if we can get the the last couple of blurbs in here before we talk to Rick. Here is a book by Christina and Anne Simon. Let's listen to what they have to say. Hi, I'm Portia Dodson, a former teacher with more than 10 years of experience working in the private school sector. I'm also the co-author of a special new book that will help guide parents through the uncharted waters of the admissions process. There are many books out there that claim they have the inside scoop to the ins and outs of the private school scene. Our new book, Beyond the Brochure, An Insider's Guide to Private Schools in Los Angeles, surpasses any traditional how-to books, offering parents a complete guide of every aspect from start to finish. Are you concerned about high tuition costs? The financial aid section provides tips on how to apply for grants, scholarships, with website links to key resources that will help you find the money. Do you want to know what's really going on at the school you are applying to? Beyond the Brochure is the first to offer a blog form for parents who can get one-on-one advice from experts and other parents who have been through the same process. Want to know what kinds of questions they plan on asking at the interview? Beyond the Brochure gives real test samples and interview tips so that you can practice with your kids at home. Are you and your child from multicultural backgrounds? 
Coming from culturally diverse backgrounds ourselves, we understand the issues and concerns many minority families face when applying to private schools in L.A. Beyond the Brochure is the only book that addresses such sensitive issues, providing practical solutions and insight gathered through our own personal experience. In the words of Access Hollywood host and Today Show correspondent Billy Bush, this is a great book for first-time parents looking for the right school. Let's face it, it's a dance, and this book has the steps. For more information, visit fatenvelopepublishing.com. Kate, are you there? I am. I am. Oh, good. Yeah, I, yep. I enjoyed that. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, she, she taught... The one thing I like, she kept mentioning the title of her book, Beyond the Brochure, Beyond the Brochure, I think three or four times, which didn't bother me at all because sometimes in other blurbs I don't even remember what the name of the book was. I, I loved the quote at the end, Billy Bush, it's a dance and this book has the steps. It was fantastic in terms of information. For and It's very niched. And I always say, you know, people always worry, what, what if my book is, is too small a niche? I say, well, you know what? You try to please everyone and you please no one. This is a very, very specific niche, people looking for private schools in L.A. And she has really, really done a great job with financial aid tips on how to apply to grants and scholarships, what goes on, uh, you know, inside the special admissions process and real samples so that you can practice with your child beforehand. I thought it was absolutely a fantastic idea, and she delivered it beautifully. What did you think? I thought her pitch was excellent. Um, I, I love the idea that uh, she's she's giving a sense of community to people. She's talking about the blog for uh, a community of parents who are who are exchanging ideas about getting their students into schools. I would like to see her expand this beyond beyond Los Angeles uh, and do different link it to different colleges so that uh, the financial aid section, and I haven't seen her book, so I really can't respond, and I think our listening audience probably will talk uh, to themselves about, you know, where, how does this apply to me? How does this, what can I get out of the, this particular book that will apply to my ability to get my student into a particular college? So it's just, a, just some minor things, but, uh, you know, she does answer the question, uh, you know, why this book and why now? Uh, and why, we, she really didn't answer, you know, why are you the best person to write this book? You know, right. and uh, not having seen the book, I, I really don't understand uh, how much research she did on it. But um, and I, I've got to I've got to give you a mea culpa. I don't know if you got my my email this morning, but I I'm doing this remote. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to beg off in about four minutes. No uh, problem. Well, let's listen to the last blurb, and then I can uh, talk to uh, our last week's winner. That Next would be blurb. wonderful. Diana Hathaway Timmons, sell your home without losing your zen. Here we go. Blog Talk Radio. Forensic vacuuming? No, it's not a new TV drama about crime-solving housekeepers. It's just one of the intriguing ideas you'll find in Sell Your Home Without Losing Your Zen, a month of encouragement for modern home sellers. My own house was model home perfect, priced right in a gorgeous neighborhood, and still it sat on the market for months. As a designer and lifestyle expert, I was humiliated. How could this happen to me? I did everything right. Was I stressed out? You betcha. Me and five million other home sellers. Then one day I realized I couldn't control the housing market, but I could control whether or not I survived it. This is Diana Hathaway Timmons. I wrote Sell Your Home Without Losing Your Zen for myself 
and for the millions of other home sellers who have been cast adrift in this unprecedented market. The book is a smash hit with home sellers as a gift for clients or friends who need a bit of humor, useful tips, and lots of encouragement as they sell their home. You'll learn the top 10 signs you've become obsessed with selling your home, why wabi-sabi is not a spicy mustard, and all about the power of cookies. Sell Your Home Without Losing Your Zen is unlike any book you've read about selling your home. It's an instruction manual, a good laugh, and a tonic for the most challenging days as a home seller. Look for Sell Your Home Without Losing Your Zen on Amazon.com and other fine booksellers, or visit KeepYourZen.com for more information. The process of selling your home won't change, but you will, and that change will make all the difference in keeping your cool while your home is on the market. Hi, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm here. Good. What do you think? Well, I thought her delivery was excellent, Um, but one of the things that was confusing is when she's talking about forensic vacuuming, uh, she doesn't. She doesn't really go into it, and I think it, the references are, although they're, they're cute, they're very clever. They're too obscure, uh, and I think she needs to offer at least one tip in her pitch to intrigue her potential readers. And I mean, really explain what it is that forensic vacuuming means, or go into home staging. Uh, I come away from this thinking it's very ethereal. Uh, that there's a lot of wonderful spiritual. Uh, probably experiences that that you know we go through when we're when we're getting our house prepared to sell it, but I don't have any real um, tangible uh, you know let, let me roll up my sleeves and do this and I would have liked to have seen more of that uh, as an example you know what is forensic vacuuming great funny cute clever title but uh, you know give me some you're giving me the sizzle I want some substance to walk away so that I can go online and say I know what this book is going to give me. You know, I know uh, why this book is going to help me get through my day because there's some significant things that I'm going to learn from it. That's so. a good point. She, she was wonderful with the delivery. I thought she had great bling. And it, it's true what you said because when you are talking to the media, uh, especially when you're doing radio interviews, basically what you have to do after, you know, when you get media trained is you learn to get your three to five messaging points down. And you learn that it's, it's okay to give away some of your tips. You, you can never give away all of it. Some, some authors say, well, I don't want to give away my tips. They have to buy my book. No, it's the opposite. You never say buy my book or read my book or in my book. What you do is you, you become an expert. You let people know what you can do to help them and to make their lives easier and to solve a problem for them, and they'll naturally be intrigued and they'll naturally be uh, drawn to you as the expert, and they might want to hire you. See, a lot of authors don't understand that what they can do is actually use their book as a calling card to then become a coach or a consultant or they could have clients. Uh, because it's very difficult to, to sell books and, and make a living. So this, this would be the perfect book for her to really coach other homeowners through this process. And to give some actual tips in the blurb would have been, an, would have been a really, really good way to hook people in and go, yes, I need her. <laughs> so I exactly. like having you know, a couple of messaging points down there to share with people right off the bat would be an excellent, tremendous idea for her to just have in her back pocket. So if she does come across people that are going through the similar problem, give them three quick tips and let them know that there's more tips. Uh, for example, my book has 101 
uh, surefire ways to make friends with your mother-in-law. So when I go on the radio, I give my best three tips. And, of course, there's, you know, 98 more tips. So, of course, if they're interested, they can get the book to read them. Read them. But I hook them in with those. I say, there's, with the sh- make, you know, make sure you can turn your biggest critic into your number one fan with a, sh- scarf, with a scarf, a shower curtain, and a ghostwriter. And then I explain how these three things can make your mother, your biggest critic, your number one fan. And then, of course, people laugh, and they want to buy the book after that. But it's really Very important to do that. Very important exactly. to do that. Well, listen, I know you've got to go to your seminar, and I'm just so thrilled that Kate Sullivan was here to, to fill in for Dr. Kent this week. Thank you so much for being here. Well, you do an outstanding job, and please give my regrets to Rick Robinson. I've already uh, Googled him, and I think he's, he's, got some, he's got a win in it. So I'm glad he was last week's winner, and oh. it was just so much fun. I'll talk to you soon. That sounds great. We'll talk later, Kate. Thanks again. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, so now we're going to turn it over to our last week's winner. Rick, are you on the line? I sure am, Sally. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for clearing your schedule and being here today with us on Blurb. I am so well, excited well, I, I, you're here. I, I feel like I should be one of the contestants today because actually with all the help, help, self-help books, uh, my books are fiction, but actually they could be titled Confessions of a Political Junkie. So. <gasps> I know. I'm reading about you. Your your background is just remarkable and so exciting. I would like. Could, could you tell people a little bit about what your background is? Because that you're right. It ties in. It's like, why are you the one to write this book? And you are the one to write this book. So let's hear a little bit about you know where you've come from, what your background is, and uh, why you were able to write such a uh, incredibly a sought-after book called Sniper Bid in this three-book series of yours that is very, very, very well-received. Thanks, Sally. I tell you, it's kind of interesting, the, the journey that I've gone through, because I started out in writing a couple years ago, and I wanted to write the great coming-of-age novel uh, and realized I couldn't get past the third chapter because I had never really come of age. So a friend was talking to me and said, you know, with everything that you've done in politics, what you really ought to do is sit down and write a political thriller. Well, I sat down and started reading some of the political thrillers that were out there. In particular, one was given to me by by Tim Green, a great writer. And he told me, you're going to love this book. It's very much inside Washington. And I got to reading some of the books that were out there. And Tim writes a wonderful novel. He's a best-selling author, uh, great novelist. But as I started reading some of these books, they happened to take place in political settings. They weren't really involving politics. So I decided that my niche in the market would be that I would go out and write political thrillers that involved real politics. My first book was the maximum my first book was the maximum contribution and in that book the main character Richard Thompson is out on the campaign trail running for election in a special election. He brings up a very mundane tax issue on the campaign trail. But the issue gets traction and suddenly throws him into a very nefarious business deal and an ongoing FBI sting operation. Now, is this, autobiog- book, is this autobiographical in any way? Like, is this sort of like stuff what, that you kind of saw happening and decided, well, this is perfect? I mean, you can't make this stuff there, up. There's, there's a lot of instances where the feel of a campaign trail, for instance, in the first book, I, I wanted to put the feel of the campaign trail in the book. So, yeah, 30 years in politics, running my own campaign, a lot of those anecdotes, a lot of those stories, a lot of that feel are is in that first book. And that's uh, you know, I, I laugh because the book actually involves um, uh, the main character waking up in bed one morning in a Washington, D.C. hotel with a redheaded stripper. 
I assured my wife that has never happened to me. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm but, sure she wanted to know. <laughs> so, so that's so that's the fiction part of it. But yes, there is a lot of and the two main characters in these books are the are the candidate and the campaign manager. And the candidate is kind of everything that I learned along the way of being a candidate myself and then running can watching candidates over the years. The campaign manager is everything I learned hanging out with some of the great campaign managers um, uh, like Lee Atwater. Uh, and some of those guys watching them run campaigns, and then also uh, the campaigns that I've run myself. So it's kind of a, you know, there, there's a there's a, a yin and a yang there of of the uh, of the two characters that are actually both a little bit of me. Well, it's cool because you have definitely been on both sides of the fence. So you have information from the from both sides, from the the, the candidate and the uh, campaign manager side, which is it's really exciting. I mean. Not you know not many people get to see the inner workings of of political campaigns, so tell us. And more. many people don't want to. <laughs> so, well, then the second book in the second book, the congressman is now elected to Congress and serving in his first term of office. And while there, he takes on his first big issue on Capitol Hill, and that is steroids in professional sports. Mm-hmm. And as he gets deeper and deeper into the topic, somebody wants to shut him up. And the only question that lies in the book then is who. For those of you who are listening that may have, you know, i got a friend I know that's listening in, Waterboy, he plays on eBay all the time. He knows what a sniper bid is. Uh, But a sniper bid is actually somebody who bids on an item at the very last second on eBay or on any of the online auctions. Uh, And the sniper bid has kind of a double entendre there in in the title and also what takes place in the book from two different angles. It's been very well received. Uh, it was one of the, the top independent novels uh, of the year this year in the Indie Book Awards, so we're very proud of that. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you. And it leads then into what is going to be the, the third book. In fact, when I did the blurb, we were actually going to release it on Election Day, but we've moved it back to the spring. So Manifest Destiny, the third in the series, will actually be released in the spring, and main characters are all back, and this time they're working on a foreign campaign in Romania. Wow. And dealing with communist rebels in the Carpathian Mountains and kidnapping uh, gypsies and things of that nature. So it's, now, have you uh, been to Romania? It, it's interesting. No, I have not been to Romania myself, but uh, in, in my years in politics, uh, several of my good friends were in the first crew of Americans that went over to Romania following the fall of communism and Nicolae Ceausescu when he, was, uh, when he fell from power. They were the first folks in to to offer uh, democratic assistance, and so I got some wonderful stories from them about what went on over there. And I had it's it's interesting, Alex. I had this idea for this book, and I went out and I started talking to people who worked in foreign campaigns, and I said, "Tell me where the most to make this book work. It has to be a place where the people are very very superstitious." I was expecting them to send me to either South America or African continent. One of those two areas. And without a doubt, every one of them said the most superstitious place they've ever been to was Romania. That is really interesting. Now, can you explain specifically what you're superstitious about? Fear of the evil eye. Wow. It is still very much – in fact, most Romanians that you find out in the countryside wear amulets around their necks to ward off the evil eye. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Oh, my goodness. And so that, that actually plays very well into the plot in the third book. Uh, manifest destiny. Now, can you tell me a little bit about as a non as a uh, fiction author, how have you gone about 
marketing your books specifically? Because this is this is very interesting because, like you said, you have a lot of nonfiction elements, although it's a fiction book. And fiction books are, are I think, trickier to market in some ways. And in some ways, they're, they're less tricky. But can you tell me exactly how, what, is, what have been the steps that you've taken to market this book? First off, I have some very good assistance from my from my publisher, Headline Books out of West Virginia. Uh, Kathy has been wonderful at making sure that that first off, I'm going. You know, I, I hit all the book fairs, I hit all the book festivals. Uh, weekends are spent by putting miles on the car going somewhere. But the I think the interesting thing is the overall look is that trying to find that niche in a in a marketplace right now that that features guys like David Baldacci. Um, you know, Brad Meltzer, the, you know, some really, really great writers. So what makes mine different is that trying to find that niche was literally coming up with the, I write political thrillers that are actually about politics. So when there are press releases, when there are webinars, where there are book signings, um, you know, it's a book that appeals to people that like politics. Um, the, the First and foremost, the, the political junkies of the world love this book. It also uh, has an appeal to non-political junkies because it's it is a good story, it is a good read uh um which is I think in, indicative of the fact that it uh, has broken out of some of the genre type awards and is now w- getting recognized in the novel areas. Now, um, have you been doing any speeches? Have you been doing any appearances uh, and uh speaking anywhere? Well, it's interesting that you say that because in the book and something that I've kind of developed myself over the years is that as I try to explain politics to people who are just getting getting into um, the game, I use a very simple method of using scenes from the Godfather series to explain politics to people. I'll take a scene out of the Godfather, and uh, it's not personal, it's strictly business. Uh, don't hate your enemy, it affects your judgment. Those types of rules are the rules that I've used in politics, I use them extensively in the books, and I also have a, a kind of a standard speaking engagement that I go out and say, the, the title of which is, Everything That I Ever Wanted to Learn About Politics, I Learned from Watching The Godfather. Wow. That's and it's, cool. an inter, it's an interactive series using clips from The Godfather and a lot of fun to do. It sounds like this would really be great in, in colleges. Is that mainly who you speak to? It's or amazing. Anywhere. It, I, I do it anywhere. A lot of political gatherings. Uh, I did it for the Southern Leadership Conference this past year. But it's amazing you say that the people that that are really turned on by the Godfather these days are the kids in college. Yeah, now, I was. I, was I remember when the Godfather came out. I remember my dad taking me to see the Godfather. So I, I have the I have enough age on me that I remember the release. But wow. uh, it's interesting to see that that uh, a good movie, a great movie like the Godfather trilogy, has withstood the test of time, and and the kids in college love this and love this uh, presentation. Well, this is absolutely fantastic. And have you utilized the strategy of uh, when you're talking to the booking people to actually make buying your book a prerequisite for the attendees? Is this something that you've explored or thought about? G- Generally not a prerequisite. Uh, we usually do back of the room sales, but okay. it, they go they go pretty good when we do those. It's That's uh, awesome. uh, don't I do so, I do some sessions where they actually want the book coming in because they want the students to read the book before. Yes. Uh, I come in and talk to them, but uh, generally there's always back of the room sales which go very well. 
Yeah, I, I actually toured with uh, James McBride for five years. If you've heard of uh, The Color of Water by any chance? Yes, yes, I and, have. And um, he, wow, his book sales just soared after his speeches. And um, basically what I did was I, I was, uh, he's also a jazz musician, and uh, both Kent and I are musicians as well. And uh, uh, James is, is a, also a tenor player, a jazz tenor player, but he, he never liked to tour on his own. He, he felt that, you know, have, having to hang out with the, the people after the gigs, he felt that oftentimes it was stuffy and he'd get lonely. And so he said, well, I'm not going to take these speaking engagements unless I can bring my jazz band. So he would do his presentation, <laughs> and then we'd have like a set of jazz and I was the piano. I was his piano player for five years, and so I got to watch. I got to watch this masterful speaker, and wow, his books. I mean, basically, what these colleges would do is they would have. Every, you know, it was like the freshman class would read *The Color of Water*, and then they'd have him come in as a speaker. And so, um, not and they'd, they'd all bring their copies, and he'd sign them. But new copies were bought, and yeah, the book sales would go like hotcakes. So, yeah, I would say. One, would, one yeah. of the things that I do, the other speech that I give, the kind of canned version that I give, is in the books, the main character is the, the, the campaign manager is into The Godfather. The, the candidate is really into music. And he loves Warren Zevon, John Prine, and Meatloaf. Ah. And, and I actually have, a, have a, a shorter presentation that I do that's called Writing Under the, uh, Searching for the Muse, Writing Under the Influence of Warren Zevon. That's and I've actually had some people come in and play some Warren Zevon music at the start of it, uh, do a couple tunes, and then kind of warm up the crowd and going into the how Warren, how how music inspires me to write. Those that are generally cool. those are generally aimed more at writing students yeah, uh, yeah. as to how you how you chase the muse. Absolutely. Oh, it's it's great because when you can kind of you know mix the medias and get get the younger people interested through music or however however else you can get them interested because you know people have different. Um, you've got a, a large crowd. You know, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach them, but you you need to pull them in. And um, it's funny because James would always start off with some kind of little joke. He'd say, "Wow, it looks like a lot of nice white. I mean, nice people out there in the audience." <laughs> like, really funny and they say you'll like me you'll really like me he would always start <laughs> off with a bunch of jokes and people would be laughing and he'd have he'd have the audience eating out of his palm so i i realize that it's it's a, it's real it's really an art to be able to speak and to put together a speech and uh, it's not something that you can just go out there and wing it you have to have your speech prepared and it sounds like you've really created two different fantastic uh topics that you can speak to and and it sounds very valuable it takes a lot of time. You're right. It takes a lot of time and planning to get uh, an hour speech ready for a uh, for a group of students or for uh, the lo- even the local Rotary Club. When you do the 15 minutes when you walk in and do the book sales, it, it takes some time to to put those together. Exactly. Wow. I mean, when I think about an hour speech, it's just mind blowing. I mean, usually interviews for radio run between three to five minutes. And, you know, I'm the elevator speech, I don't want to say elevator speech queen, but um, I, basically I teach people how to create their elevator pitches. And when I do interviews on the air, I do three to five minute interviews. And so when I think about, you know, doing longer speeches, it does, it takes a lot of preparation. And, uh, but it's a lot of fun as well and such a great way to sell books. Wow, it's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And well, thank you for naming Sniper Bid the the blurb book of the week. I appreciate that very much. Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank everybody who was here in the chat room with us today uh, for showing up and spending another week blurb with us. We had a great, great time talking to.
everybody here today, and I uh, want to thank Kate Sullivan for being my co-host. And we will see everybody again next week, same time, same place. Thanks again, Rick. See you, Sally. Take care. Bye, everyone.